We are in the book of Colossians. And we are starting in chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that we are established in Jesus. It's by your mercy and grace that you poured out upon us that we can come before you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come and present our request to you, Lord. We thank we can, you, we can gather as brothers and sisters and worship you, our Heavenly Father. We thank you that we have a Savior and his name is Jesus and that there is uh, none other under heaven by which we can be saved except by the name of Jesus. Thank you so much that you are so good to us. You walk with us every single step of the way, God. You are with us in the dark times. You're with us in the joyous times. You're with us in the tough times. You're with us in the glorious times. You are always with us. We thank you, Lord, that you will continue to be with us. Whatever might come, whatever might come, God, you will be with us. Be with us now as we continue on, as we look into your word. We thank you for your word. It truly is uh, the word of God. It is powerful and can touch lives and change them. So we pray, Lord, for our nation, that it would turn back to you. We pray for the churches, that they would be faithful to you. We pray for our county, Lord, that, that we would be uh, salt and light and difference makers, and that you would be merciful to this nation, God. Bring about a revival that people might come to know you, they would bow the knee to you, that um, lives would be changed, um, hearts transformed, God, and all this for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the, the things that is sometimes um, challenging when we look at any, type, any book in the Bible is that the, we have to remind ourselves that the chapter divisions and the verses uh, are not inspired. So they were put there, actually hundreds of years later, um, they, they were put there to, you know, really for organization's sake. So there are times when you get uh, to a second chapter. Y'all hearing me? You get to a second chapter, and there's actually a thought that's continuing on. 
So that's what we're seeing here, which is why I kept re reading, because really um, the whole thought of what Paul is trying to communicate in this next section begins in verse 24 and goes through chapter 2 uh, through the end of verse 5. And so um, sometimes we can see, oh, you, you might have even been caught off guard that I kept reading into chapter 2 because of that. But the whole unit of thought is really verses 24 and then going through chapter 2 and verse 5. If we kind of take a snapshot of chapters uh, 1 and then going into 2 a little bit, if we think about it and pause for a moment, really the first 12 verses of Colossians, and you can kind of glance back at it with me just a little bit, the, the focus really is on, I mean, it's kind of an introduction of Paul and what's been going on and what he and Timothy have been doing. So it's an introduction of sorts. Um, there's some exhortations in there, but really the focus is on Paul and Timothy and in part the Colossians. But really all that is setting the stage for what we get to in verse, really verse 13, where it really starts to shift and we start to get into really the content of the letter of Colossians. And, it's, and it focuses on Christ. So starting in verse 13, we find out he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That leads us into verse 15, which is a hymn of sorts. And we get, he is the image of the invisible God. And we get about eight or nine verses there, which really focus um, entirely and completely on Christ. Then towards the end of that, we, we see a shift where we get a little bit of exhortation in verse 23, where it, it kind of shifts to, um, really are standing before the Lord. The end of 22, um, God's present, or Jesus is presenting us holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. So now the focus is, hey, back on us. So now that we've learned these amazing things about Jesus, like how are we going to live that out and walk it out? Then Paul, um, somewhat uncharacteristically, takes the focus uh, really back onto him and, what, and his ministry. So at the end of verse 23, he says, uh, at the very end, of which I, Paul, became a minister and so even though in the first oh, 12 or 13 verses he's using the plural and talking a lot of we and us, it actually shifts here and he starts to talk um, specifically about him and his role in part as an apostle, um, in part as a minister, in part of in specifically what God's called him to do. So he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then notice all the eyes throughout the section that we just read there's actually so many i'm not going to uh, highlight all of them but starting in verse 24 now i rejoice in my sufferings uh i am filling up what is lacking verse 25 i became a minister um verse 29 for this i toil chapter 2 verse 1 for i want you to know how great a struggle i have uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 i say this uh, verse 5, for though I am absent in body, then I'm with you in spirit. I mean, so Paul's really focusing on what God has called him to do and how that applies to his ministry for the Colossians. One of the things that he mentions and that has caused some confusion with people is found in the very first uh, verse that we read in verse 24, where he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now pause for a moment and think of Paul's sufferings. What are Paul's sufferings? Well, one, he's in prison. He mentions it later in the letter um, that he's in prison. Now when you think of prisons today, if you're thinking of prisons in America, um, most of them really aren't like horrible. I mean, no one wants to be there, right? Um, but uh, compared to many other countries, um, it, it's pretty cushy. 
Um, and we could go into much detail and talk about uh, prison life in the New Testament times. It wasn't pretty. Um, some prisoners um, had their, their shackles on such short chains that they couldn't even move their hands to their face uh, to feed themselves. And so they truly were uh, dependent on other, either other prisoners or outside visitors to even feed them or to even clean them up. So that's one of the ways that he's talking about his sufferings. What other ways was Paul suffering? Well, so he's suffering at the hands of the Romans in his imprisonment, but also at the hands of the people he was trying to spread the gospel to. I mean, they're, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, yet he's trying to reach them with the gospel. Same with us today. Right? He's also suffering at the hands of the Jews who are trying to stop him from spreading the gospel. So there's some suffering going on. But what is meant in verse 24 when he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Now there's, there's a few options here. One would be that Christ's death, one option would be that Christ's death was not enough. That, that Paul had to do something to complete it. But why? Well, one, the word afflictions that he used here, um, it's not used in regard to redemption in the New Testament at any other place. So we're not talking about salvific issues. And even if you think about it, if, if this truly was Paul's position, I mean, he'd really be contradicting himself because his whole point when he, when he was battling the Gnosticism, the Gnostics were saying you need more than Christ. Paul's argument is you only need Christ. So he'd, he'd really be contradicting himself, and that simply wouldn't make sense. Not only that, he, he goes on in the book of Colossians, I mean, to show that the work of Christ is complete and sufficient. So if we look at just a couple places, uh, earlier in verse 18, chapter 1, he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's pretty complete. That's, that's sufficient. We get no picture in those uh, nine verses there that, that something else is needed apart from what Christ has already done. So that's one issue. Also, look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority and then it goes on in verse 13 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh god made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses and we've talked about it before what can a dead man do nothing a dead man can't do nothing here it is you were dead in your trespasses so the idea of us trying to um, do something in addition to what Christ has done or there's something that we need to fulfill um, goes completely contrary to what Scripture says, including these verses right here. If we're dead, we can't do anything. Christ has to do it, and he does. Going on, verse 14, chapter 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen? We could actually look at more, but um, that will suffice. 
Okay, so that's really not an option. Option two is more of like a mystical view. It's the church and Christ exist in an extremely close relationship such that what one endures, the other endures. But that has a couple problems regarding interpretation and context. Um, first, Paul distinguished himself from Christ in Christ's work. What does he call himself here? He calls himself, verse 23, he calls himself a minister, and he goes on in verse 25 to again call himself a minister. That's actually the Greek word there, diakonos. And we just transliterate that normally into English with what word? Deacon. Okay? Um, so you can translate it just straight out deacon. You can translate it here like uh, minister. Some versions might actually translate it servant. That, that would be fine as well. The point being is that Paul does not come ever anywhere close to putting him on the same level or plane with Christ. Okay? There is very much an hierarchy. Christ is way high. Paul, what is he? The chief of sinners. Second, this kind of mystical view, it really doesn't answer in what sense would there be any lack in what Christ did. It still doesn't achieve anything, even if there is some type of mystical union that the church and Christ share in that what one endures, the other endures. It's still, we still have the, well, what's, being, what's the afflictions that are being filled up? It actually doesn't answer it. So it fails to satisfy the details of the text. Well, there, there's another view that there's a neat connection regarding suffering between Christ and individual believers. And there's truth in that. But even if true, this still doesn't answer what it's, what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. I mean, that, we're trying to figure out when it says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, what's lacking? I mean, that's the question, right? What's lacking? Okay, so the fourth view, which is the correct view. Um, always save that one for the last. We have to, when we talk about um, filling up and measures, we have to think in terms of like limits and set amounts. And the scripture actually talks a few times about limits and set amounts. So we're going to look at maybe just a couple examples. Let's turn to, and keep your place in Colossians, we'll be coming back, but turn to Genesis 15. So in Genesis 15, I mean, this is God's covenant with Abram. And um, he picks it up uh, after the, the covenant is made. He says in verse 14, Genesis 15, uh, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Talking about Egypt. And as for you, you shall go forth to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, right, meaning to, to the promised land. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so you're like, well, the iniquity, well, what does it mean to be complete? Well, there's this idea that like God, I mean, God is, is patient. He's long-suffering. He wants all to do what? Repent. And he will stay his hand for a season, a very long season, but there's this idea, and we see, it, we see it here, that there's an amount at which once it's arrived, what happens? Judgment. And what do the Israelites end up doing? They're the hand of God to deliver that judgment on the nations once they come out of Egypt. 
they end up crossing into the promised land, and what does God use them to do? Bring about judgment. So that idea of the iniquity of the Amorites, not yet complete. Well, once it's complete, what happens? Yeah, the Israelites are marching in, and they're giving out the judgment upon them. We see something similar, and we talked about it at the time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 2, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Again, this idea of filling up the measure, there's a certain point at which God will bring about the judgment on a particular group or a particular people. Now here's the thing. That means that like, God's not like willy-nilly about judgment, and he just like wakes up one day and he's like, okay, fine, I've had enough of that. Like it's, it's, it's predetermined. He's said it. There's an amount. Okay? So it's not like, oh, I'm going to treat this group different and this group different and this group different. No. There's amounts. And he's being very gracious. I mean, one, let's just be clear, the fact that he even sets amounts at all is very gracious. His one sin, he could have been like, okay, judgment is coming. But he stays his hand. He stays judgment uh, for generations and generations and generations. So we see that. Then we see something similar in Revelation chapter 6. Starting in verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, I mean, they're asking, they're asking for, for judgment and really for justice. And what does it say? Well, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. There's a set amount. So back to the Colossians passage. This, this word here of lacking gives the idea in the Greek of a measurable deficiency. A measure, you can measure it. And it implies a predetermined quota or fullness. The other thing we have to keep in mind when we're dealing with uh, Colossians is there is very much, starting in verse 24 and through this, um, this kind of passage that we're looking at, uh, an apocalyptic flavor going on. So verse 26, it's the mystery hidden for ages. Verse 27 the riches of the glory of this mystery. Chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So, I mean, this word mystery, and then going on, in whom are hidden 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So kind of this apocalyptic flavor here. And what, what's going on is there's an eschatological view of the end times. There's a coming age, and the Jews knew it. The Jews knew it. Even their, their own kind of extra-biblical literature uh, references this idea. But the Old Testament, it foreshadows it. The New Testament speaks clearly to it. And so the Jewish literature during the time of the New Testament, it emphasized this idea of the woes of the Messiah, the Hebelo Sel Messiah. And these woes immediately precede the arrival of the anointed ruler of God. Well, this is similar to what we see in the New Testament. And there's, there's, there's one word that's used. Birth pangs. The birth pangs. So look at Matthew 24. So in Matthew 24, we'll start in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So you have these birth pains. Mark says something similar. The birth pains have begun, and the end is coming upon us. The new age that Christ will usher in is upon us. All these things that have, yet, yet, have, have not yet fully occurred, otherwise Jesus would be here. But there's a set amount that has to happen. There is a set amount that has to happen. God is not willy-nilly with suffering. He's not willy-nilly with affliction. Matthew Henry said, He had a certain rate and measure of suffering for Christ assigned him. And as his sufferings were agreeable to that appointment, so he was still filling up more and more what was behind or remained of them to his to share. What is that saying? Basically, Paul's saying, I'm doing my part. I'm filling up the measure of afflictions that God has appointed to me. And I'm, look, what he, look back in Colossians, notice his, his resoluteness and his steadfastness, but look at his, his demeanor. Verse 24, now I rejoice, I rejoice. So I'm, I'm rejoicing the whole way, and I know God is using this for building up the body. Okay? For, because that's what it says in verse 24, for the sake of his body, that is the church. This is being done for the benefit of the church. So the idea, one theologian said, is not so much that Paul's suffering is part of the decreed afflictions of the corporate body of Christ, but that all have their allotted portion of suffering to endure. But notice, again, why is he doing it? Not for salvation. No, for the sake of his body, that is the church. How many have suffered for the name of Christ? Countless. And each one of us, hopefully, we have suffered for the name of Christ. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will what? Face persecution. So, one, 
again, take solace that it's not some random sequence of events. God knows. And, and he's allotted you a portion. And for some, it's a big portion. For others, it's less. But again, it's not like, oh, look what happened over there to, to, to John. He's suffering more than I thought he should. I really messed that one up. No. God knows, and he's allotted in a portion. But for all, there is a specific amount. One, I mean, this verse goes against any notion of any type of prosperity gospel, right? What's he rejoicing in? I mean, that, that he's making a killing with all the tents that he's selling? <laughs> right? No, he's rejoicing in his sufferings. He's rejoicing in his sufferings. That, that, should, that challenges me, that should challenge you, rejoicing in sufferings. But it goes against any notion of prosperity. I mean, there's Prosperity Gospel 1.0, which I felt like that wave washed over America, and un unfortunately it's still in parts of other continents, uh, heavily in Africa, sadly. Um, but that, that wave, and it's still present, but there's kind of a 2.0, which I'll speak at in the future. Um, it's more subtle. It's a little bit more uh, 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 tricky and sneaky. But here's the thing, and I want us to notice this, and this might be tough for some of you to, 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 uh, to take in, but sometimes your sufferings are solely for the benefit of others. Again, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I'm filling up what it's like in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Paul's not saying, like, for me. Well, I'm sure suffering, God uses it, but sometimes, I think sometimes we get, we get so uh, me-centered that we, we always think that whatever God is doing, it has to be about us. And that we're clearly involved in the picture and play a key role. No. And we think of suffering helping us. Well, sure. And God uses it. But, but what if you found out that, that some of your suffering was solely for the sake of the church? that it actually was benefiting the church, that your suffering was bringing glory to God because it was benefiting the church in some way, some shape, some form. Maybe it was encouraging some brother or sister who sees you struggling along and they see you faithful. And, and in the spite of everything that they know that you got going on, week after week, day after day, you're faithful to serve. And they're, they're thinking, and maybe they've been tempted to walk away or maybe they got their own suffering coming up and that encourages them to keep pressing on. But let's not get so focused on ourselves that we're just like, oh, this suffering, yeah, it's for me, and God's teaching me. Well, yeah, I hope he is, and he does. But maybe it's for others in the church. Are you okay with this? All Christians participate in these sufferings. Look at Romans 8. Verse 16, Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. Again, prosperity gospel, like this verse, they must like uh, do a Thomas Jefferson to it. They just cut it out, you know? I mean, provided we're heirs, I mean, I'm just reading it, right? We're heirs provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we always want the glory. Well, the suffer- if you want the glory, you've got to have the suffering. It goes on, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And sometimes you see people going through really tough times and afflictions and sufferings, and you're like, Lord, what are you doing? Well, guess what? Maybe their suffering is for you. Maybe what they're going for is to build you up. It's for your benefit. The Lord is working in a thousand different ways, and we don't even see probably 20% of that. We probably don't even see 5% of it. Not this side of heaven. Not usually. But we trust. We walk in that trust. But notice this. In the midst of the sufferings and the afflictions, God is always at work. He's always at work. And thus there is always hope. So what's, what's still occurring? Do these things, these sufferings, do they slow us down? Well, sometimes, let's just be honest, they do. But look what Paul's working towards in, in Colossians. There's a mystery. Now, Hollywood's made billions and billions of dollars off of, like, mystery movies, Right? And books, uh, one of the most popular genres, maybe the most popular genre, is the, like the murder mystery. Like, who did it? You know, have you read Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys? Okay. And the apex in the story is always when the mystery is revealed. Well, the, the, the mystery is revealed. Back in Colossians, what do we find out? Verse 27. To them God chose to make known. So God's revealing to the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what's the mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. So there was mystery cults back at the time uh, of the New Testament. And all these mystery cults, they had like different initiations that you had to do. Um, And these went on for for centuries and centuries, even one of the worst uh, emperors, Julian the Apostate, who totally came after the Christians, um, was, in, was involved and initiated into um, some of these schools. And so this idea of the mystery, it, it plays well with the Gnosticism. There's this hidden knowledge, this secret knowledge. There's a mystery there, and it has to be revealed to you if you jump through the hoops, essentially. But, but what is Paul saying? No. Like, the mystery has been revealed. Something, the definition of a mystery when you talk about in the New Testament, it's something that, has, that was previously kept hidden or secret, which has now been revealed. Paul uses this word 21 times in the New Testament. And usually it accompanies words like made known, like he uses here, or revealed. The revealed mystery. Now, to be clear, does God keep things hidden? Yes. Does anyone know the day and time Christ is returning? No. Okay. He keeps things hidden. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there's certain things that are still a mystery. 
in the Old Testament, including the prophets, I mean, they were somewhat in the dark. They didn't see clearly uh, and, and could give us the details, oh, this is what's going to occur and this is how it's going to go down. Um, they prophesied about it, but they didn't clearly have a, a full picture of any particular prophet. Look at what First Peter says. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So <clears throat> the prophets didn't have a clear picture. What, what happens? God has what's called a progressive revelation that he reveals throughout time. And it gets clearer along the way, culminating in what he does in his very son, Jesus. So this progressive revelation, these mysteries, some of them are revealed to us. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 16. Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that, has, that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin. They're promised a savior. And it's like the, the first glimpse of the gospel. But that's really all they were given that is recorded in the scriptures. They're given, yes, uh, <clears throat> he's going to strike your heel, but you're going to crush his head, the seed. The seed of Adam and Eve. It will be victorious. They get this promise there. But that's about, that's about all the picture that they get. Victory is guaranteed, but they don't have any idea that his name is Jesus. He's going to be born here. He's going to die on the cross. No. But what is the Lord doing? He's weaving this story. And as it goes on, he's speaking to the prophets. And, he's, and it's becoming clearer and clearer. But even then, the, the very people who were, who were steeped in the scriptures, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus comes, and the very Son of God is right before them, and they don't even recognize and acknowledge him. They don't even recognize and acknowledge him. We can be so steeped in the scriptures sometimes and think we know it so well that we end up deceiving and duping ourselves because of our pride, because of our arrogance, because of our selfish desires. We need to be careful. Look at Ephesians 1. Verse 7, Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Okay? Making known to us the mystery of his will, his revealed will, right here in the scriptures. God has revealed it to us. If we go on, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Again, that mystery, and then he's always using the revealed or the word made known. The mystery made known, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Again, this revealed mystery. In this case, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Remember, you're reading through Acts, and at the very beginning, they're just like shocked that the Gentiles are actually getting saved. So that part of the revealed, that God's revealing, is what? The message isn't just for the Jews. It's for everyone. Jews and Gentiles, right? Scythian, barbarian, the the best to the worst, everyone included, all are invited. And even back in Colossians, we see Paul use this word in Colossians 4. He says in verse 3, at the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on which, on account of which I am in prison. Okay? He's declaring the mystery of Christ. Well, I mean, it's not like hey, there's there's this guy, Christ, and I'm not going to tell you anything about him. No, it's the revealed mystery of who? Christ and what he has done for his church. Being a a sacrifice, being the the lamb without spot or blemish, laying his life down for us. Hallelujah. So think about, for a moment, the impact of Paul's, Paul's, Paul's use here. The Colossians were being tempted into, a, into giving into this Gnosticism, this hidden knowledge required to be right with God. Now, some churches do this today, actually. Like, if you don't hang with them, then you're missing out on the real meaning of the Scriptures. Um, even, I mean, the Catholic Church has the official interpretation of the Scriptures. So Paul is really piquing their, their curiosity, is, is basically like, they're all about the mystery, and they're hearing about this mystery from the the, the false teachers and the Gnostics. So he's kind of piquing their, their curiosity. He's like, you want to know what the real mystery is? It's Christ. That's the real ministry, and you already know it. You already know it, and you already have it. Christ is the mystery that has been revealed. This other stuff that you're pursuing, it, it's all hogwash. It's silly. So he talks about how great Christ is, and then explains that Christ is the great mystery to be revealed. There is no greater mystery. Christ is the greatest It doesn't get any better because if you have Christ, you have everything that you need. So it is magnificent. And Paul calls it back in Colossians 1. What does he call it? Verse 27. The riches of the glory of this mystery. There's so many like uh, genitives going on here in the Greek. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it's this... These, these riches are glorious riches. Glorious riches of a revealed mystery. In this case, Paul is saying, it's Christ in you. 
like you have Christ. You have the hope of glory. There is nothing else to be added to your walk with the Lord if you have Jesus. There's nothing else you need for salvation. There's nothing else that you need to be justified. There's nothing else you need for redemption. If you have Jesus, you have that. So it's all about Christ. The content is Christ. Christ is the key. So don't downgrade the importance of Christ to Christianity. I remember years ago, this uh, so-called believer that I knew saying that, that Christ wasn't that key to Christianity. I was like, what? Like, he is the key. If you take away Christ, you don't have Christianity. You take away Christ, you don't have salvation. You have to have Christ to have salvation. Here's the thing. Let me say this in conclusion. Can joy and suffering coexist? Yes. Again, back to verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The coexistence of joy and suffering, really, if, you read, if you're reading your New Testament, if you're reading your Bible, if you're having your quiet times, you see that joy and suffering can exist in our lives. It exists in Paul's lives. It can exist in ours. And it very much should exist. But notice, it points to Paul's imitation of Christ's sufferings. What was Paul told? Actually, not what was Paul told. What was um, Ananias told when he's like, hey, I want you to go pray, pray over Paul. He's been stricken blind. And he's like, um, that's probably not going to turn out so well for me, Lord. <clears throat> and he tells them that he, he has much to suffer. He has much to suffer for the cause, right? Well, we have much to suffer we need to be faithful. And times are getting tougher and tougher. And we have to decide if we're going to live by lies or live by the truth. If we're going to proclaim that which is false or proclaim that which is truth. And if we want to be on the side of Jesus, we have to proclaim that which is true. Listen, even, even the riches of this world don't compare. If you have Jesus, guess what? You get all of him. All of him. Not just part of him or some of him. You get all of Christ. And, and what's our, our motto for this year? All of Christ for all of life. So you get, you get the riches with Christ, not the physical riches. Were the disciples rich? No. Not, not from a human perspective, not from a monetary perspective. I mean, Paul's probably like the only writer to write a bestseller and never make a single penny off of it, okay? And just think about it. He wasn't in it for the money. Nor did he get tons of money. And listen, if, if, if we throw our lot in with the 12 disciples, I mean, we're not going to be living in palaces and mansions. We're not going to be uh, dining with the rich of the rich. You have the riches of this world on one hand, and you have the riches of Christ on the other. And you've got to choose. Because Jesus makes it clear, um, you get, uh, how many masters, was it four, or, or two? One. You're, you can only serve one master. So who are we going to serve? Jesus, right? 
Jesus. And all this is driving Paul that this mystery that's been revealed, now he wants to make this mystery known. He wants to make it known. Christ in us, the hope of glory, now what? For the nations. Okay, back to the Great Commission. What are we called to do? To make the disciples. Make the disciples, teaching them. Teaching them to obey. Baptizing them. Being faithful to show them what the scriptures say and then walk it out. But it starts with us. And brothers and sisters, we are going to have some tough times. Some, some of y'all already had some tough times. For the name of Christ. Afflictions. Bearing ill will. Because you decide to stand with Jesus and his truth. Listen, life would go so much more easy if we could just water down certain parts of the scriptures. It'd go easy with the world. But, but what does Jesus say? Hey, don't, don't feel that those that, that can destroy your body. Who, who do you fear? The one that can send you to hell. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew. He's, he's very blunt. Okay, so the world, the worst it can do is kill us. You're like, that's pretty bad, Pastor. <laughs> but what does Paul remind us of? Like, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? So, <clears throat> if all there was, with, was this life to live and then, and then it was gone, yeah, you know, I mean, there'd be, a little, there'd be you'd be like, wow, that's kind of a, that's a big deal. We've, we've got another life coming. That, that makes this life, it pales so much in comparison, okay? Y'all uh, been to the beach in the last few years, anybody? Okay. <clears throat> I mean, you just, uh, our life is just like, you know, and usually you, you bring some water because it's going to be hot at the beach, you know? I mean, if you just took like one little drop from, from the cup and went to the, to the edge of the, where the water is lapping up from the ocean and, and drop it in there, I mean, that's, that's what this life is. It's just like one little drop. And the ocean is, is what is to come. So much more. And eternity. And even that analogy is actually not sufficient because it really doesn't display the, the eternalness of eternity. But it at least gives you an idea of the vastness of it and the depth of it. It's going to be a long time. We're going to be there for a bit. So this, this, this life is like a drop. I mean, it's just like a little drop compared to eternity. So, I mean, if I spilled some of this, you know, just a little bit, like, is that a big deal? No. I mean, you've been, y'all been doing it for years on the carpet. It's not been a big deal, okay? <laughs> <coughs> so what's the big deal if, 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 if the drop, you know, goes out a little bit earlier, gets spilled sooner than we think it should? Like, we've got the ocean, you know? We've got the ocean. And, and where's that ocean? I mean, so we, we, get, we die, we get Christ. We get Christ. And we get all of him. So yeah, so <clears throat> uh, fear those that can kill the body? No, don't fear those. That's, that's the best they can do. That's the best they can do. Fear the one who can send you to hell, who can punish you, whose wrath can be poured about, out upon you. That's who we're supposed to fear. That's who we're supposed to fear. All that to say that the Lord wants us to walk faithfully with him.
every single step. And yes, suffering does lie ahead. And affliction awaits. But if we have Jesus, listen, I'll take Jesus with the affliction and suffering than having the easy path without him. Think about it. Think about it. If you have Jesus, then whatever might come, you can walk through it. You can get through it. God will come out victoriously. You have the life everlasting. It is a beautiful life promised to you. It's not just like a flip of the coin. It's not like a maybe. No, you have eternal life promised to you. If you, right? 1 John 1, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, he gave the right to become children of God. Adopted into the family. Part of the kingdom. Not of darkness, but the kingdom of light. And you are reigning with the king. You are a co-heir with Christ. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful thing. And he's not just writing fancy words just because it sounds cool. No, it's a true reality. And we get glimpses of it throughout the scriptures. Revelation paints some amazing pictures. No eyes seen, no ears heard. And right now, we're just looking through that glass dimly. But one day, how are we going to see? Face to face. It'll be beautiful. Let's press on, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are with us every single step of the way, that whatever might come with sufferings or afflictions, you stand with us, you walk with us. Lord, sometimes you shield us from some of it. Sometimes you, you let us uh, experience that because you're doing a work in us, but you're also using it for the benefit of the church. So God, remind us that it's not some pointless or aimless thing, but you're using it. You're using it for our good. You're using it uh, for the good of others and you are using it for your glory. Continue to bring us to a deeper place of trust with you, to trust you, Lord, as the afflictions and the sufferings come. Help us, Father, by your spirit and strength to rejoice in those times and during those seasons. As tough as it might be, we know that our Redeemer lives. And though our flesh may rot and decay, in the end we will stand with our Redeemer. Thank you, Father. You truly are good to your children. We love you. Amen.